get them out and open to Acts 13. I was thinking about this as I was singing. It would be cool, I guess, if we could uh, just do like a fun baby dedication sermon today uh, that was nice and happy, but um, that's not what we're doing. Uh, I'm not saying this sermon is just going to be a downer and uh, that kind of thing, but um, we are going to dig in deep today. Uh, our text is, uh, it, it, it brings up some things uh, that, that are hard, they are going to be hard for us. And so I'm just preparing you uh, before we get started. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, as Carlton Brown said earlier, we are so glad that you are here and we would love to get to know you. But just to fill you in, we're traveling through the book of Acts and we find ourselves in chapter 13. We've been doing this since the end of April and, uh, and God has been so, so good through his word, through this book that Luke wrote, which is the continued acts of Jesus through his Holy Spirit-empowered church. That's why it's called Acts. Uh, so in today's text, we will jump back to the church in Antioch. Luke has been writing for us and giving us an account of the early church and how things are progressing and moving forward. And he kind of jumps here and zooms in, and then he jumps over here and zooms in. And so today, we're jump jumping back to the church in Antioch. Uh, Luke tells us about the commissioning of Saul, who we will know from this point moving forward as Paul and Barnabas. They are commissioned as missionaries in this text. And so from this point moving forward, the majority of the book of Acts will actually follow Paul's missionary journeys as he takes them all over, literally all over the map. So, Without further ado, let's, let's hop right in and read our text. Acts 13, verses 1 through 12 is what we're going to be reading. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me for Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimaeus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, a mist of darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed 
when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. So, so good to us, God. And I'm so thankful that you've graciously given us your word. Your word that conforms us into the image of the Son who is the Word. <laughs> and Father, I know that this conformity sometimes is not easy, God. You, it says your Word uh, cuts us. And so, Father, as your Word has cut into my heart and made me pray differently this week and reshape my thinking, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit through your word, would do the same for us all again this morning. We need you, God. We need Christ. We need conformity to his image, God. So would you please shape us in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you that don't know, uh, I grew up just a few miles down the road at Westwood Baptist Church. Um, my earliest memorable experience in missions was I was in the seventh grade and Justin Holland who is now the pastor at Mountain View right up the road was my youth pastor yes he's that old um, but he took us over to Atlanta and uh, what's called at what to a place that's called the International Village for those of you that don't know uh, in Metro Atlanta there is about a five mile wide area that is home to 145 different people groups. It's astonishing. Where more than 700 languages, different languages are spoken. Isn't that wild? Right an hour and a half away, five miles, that much diversity. On that trip, I remember for the first time trying to interact with and love on people who I couldn't really communicate with because of the language barrier. So we would go to the apartment complexes and play games and tell stories and try to share the gospel through interpreters uh, to the kids and their parents. Now this trip was very impressionable for me, uh, but I didn't really understand why. Like I remember thinking during that trip, this feels so right. Uh, but I really didn't have time to process why that was. But over the next few years, uh, I would see our church promote missions and missionaries. Every Sunday and Wednesday, I would walk down a hall uh, with uh, different uh, flags of countries hung up and pictures of missionaries. My mom would take several trips to Africa. And I tell you all this to let you know that as a teenager in high school, I wasn't confused that we as Christians have been called and commanded to get the gospel to the nations. However, I had no idea what that meant for me. That's where the disconnect was. How was I supposed to play a role in getting the gospel to those who have never heard the gospel? So this week, as I've studied the text and have had many divinely orchestrated conversations that deal with the implications of this text, 
I've decided to entitle today's sermon, What is a Missionary? What is a Missionary? Now, before you check out, thinking that today's message will be all about those crazy people, right, who pick up everything and travel to a far away place to live with people who aren't like them, let me humbly submit to you that not understanding your personal role in getting the gospel to people who don't have access to the gospel will result in a poor Christian life for you. It will. I might even go a step further and say that an apathetic attitude toward global missions could possibly mean you don't know God. Again, I don't say that to to make you scared or fearful so that all of a sudden you'll start caring today, right? Like, that's ridiculous. I say this because I know we as Americans are consumed with ourselves. Like, we believe that the world revolves around us. And as Christians living in America, this is the cultural air we breathe. And so it only makes sense that this kind of wicked, self-centered ideology has infested our Christian worldview. But let me make clear that a form of Christianity that doesn't cause every individual to take global mission seriously is not biblical. It's not. I know that's a lot and that's a really heavy way to start a message, right? But if you're like me and you would confess that you have a natural tendency toward self-absorbed religion, religion that manifests itself through prayerlessness for those who have never heard the gospel, then this message is for you and me. So, I think the best way of answering a question is to sometimes ask more questions. <laughs> so we'll be answering the question of what is a missionary with three questions. And this will serve as your outline for those of you that take notes. Praise God for you. Number one question we're going to answer is, where do they come from? Number two, what do they do? And number three, why? Why do they do it? So we got a lot to cover. Let's get to it. Where do missionaries come from? Well, in our text, the two missionaries that we have being commissioned out are from the church in Antioch. Now, what kind of church was Antioch? Do you remember? We mentioned several weeks ago, uh, early on, that it was the first multi-ethnic church in the book of Acts. And in our text, Luke gives us the five names of the leaders of the church in Antioch, with the exception, he gives us detail about these five leaders, with the exception of Barnabas and Saul. Why is this? Why does he tell us these are the five leaders and here's the detail about three of them you don't know? Because he wants you to understand how diverse this church is. 
So we're told about Simeon, who was called Niger. You know what Niger means? Dark or black. From this we gather that Simeon was probably from North Africa. We're told about Lucius, the Cyrene. Cyrene was just a city south of the Mediterranean, known for prosperity and a few major philosophers. So well-to-do Lucius. And then we're told about Menaean. It says that he's a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and some of your versions might say brought up with Antipas. The point here is that Menaean was a social elite. And then we already know that Saul was a Pharisee from Tarsus, and Barnabas was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. So do you see this? Like, the reason we're given this detail is Luke is trying to make it crystal clear that the church in Antioch was diverse, very diverse. And Antioch's diversity was important. But not only were they diverse, they had God's heart. Like, if you look at just the last verse of the last chapter, look at your Bibles, we see Saul and Barnabas returning from their relief mission to the church in Jerusalem who was hit hard by famine. Now we see them fasting and praying, looking to take their cues, their next steps from who? God, through his Holy Spirit. And so we gather that this church in Antioch was not self-focused. They weren't focused inwardly. They weren't navel gazers. They were a diverse church who shared God's heart. But I want to dig into this diverse piece. Like, I want you to think, what would a gathering have looked like for the church in Antioch? Can you imagine? Like, we have to believe from what Luke tells us and what we know about history that there would have been people from many different ethnicities coming together who even spoke different languages. People who all dressed very differently and thought very differently. Remember, this is the time before there were infinite denominations. But can you imagine all of these different people from different backgrounds and different perspectives gathering as one body united in Christ? Now, for some of you, the thought of that puts a smile on your face. Like you probably think, I wish Grace Fellowship looked more like that. More like the vision we have in Revelation 7, where every nation, tribe, and tongue are gathered around the throne and are represented worshiping King Jesus. That would be glorious. And church, I want to tell you, I think it's right for us to long for that kind of diversity in our local body. But it's not really where things are at, is it? I mean, if you look around this morning... Let's be honest, you won't see a whole lot of diversity. And chances are, if you get into conversations with people in this room, you'll find out that there's not much diversity about the way most of us think about life and the world. Lecrae says that Sunday is the most segregated time of the week. And some of you are wondering, who is Lecrae? And this is my point. While we like the idea of diversity, and we like the picture we see in Revelation 7, if we're honest, 
If we're honest, can we be honest? We are all a little suspect about how it works out practically. I mean, here's an easy one. We don't really want to hear music that's not our taste or preference. Like, we don't really want to be around people that make us feel uncomfortable because the stuff they like or the stuff they want to talk about or the way they look or even dress. Like, we would probably be bothered if lots of people this morning began shouting or jumping during worship. Or even worse, if people begin clapping and standing up and shouting and preaching back at me while I preach. I mean, it'd probably be kind of weird if we had to translate languages during our service, right? Like when we begin to press in and think about all the real struggles and implications of a diverse church, we may begin to wonder something like, wouldn't it be easier if they just worshipped over there and we worshipped over here? Yes. Yes, it would be much easier. And I think that's why things are the way they are. It's easier to avoid people who aren't like you. It's easier to associate with those who get you, those who have things in common with you, those who are cut from the same cloth as you, those who share your same theology, those who don't challenge your way of life or your presuppositions, and God forbid, don't challenge you on your political leaning. Like, you see, we like the idea of diversity, but, uh, and, and I'll go a step further, I'll, like, I even think we would, we would affirm and welcome diversity. Like, we like it and we would even affirm and welcome it if as long as, over time, they begin thinking like us and acting like us and speaking like us, voting like us. And I want you to know, church, that the church in Antioch wasn't immune to these types of struggles. I mean, this is what they had to work through and work with. But what we do know is that they're being led by Saul or Paul who teaches things like we see written by him in Romans 14, which says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Don't quarrel about opinions. Or in Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Or in Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of And church, I want you to know that he didn't just teach these things so that they would have better theology about relating to one another. Like he taught these things so that they could faithfully walk out their new life in Christ. Because their new life meant adoption into a family that spans across all ethne or people groups of the world. 
It spans across denominational lines and doctrinal lines that you and I would be leery to cross. Okay, now some of you are struggling. But that's okay. You know why? Because the church in Antioch struggled. And you might be asking yourself, where in the world do you see that in the text? Right here. Where it tells us that even the leadership of this church was diverse. Diverse means different. Different thought. Different look. Different method. Different background. Like you really think this group of pastors had all the same theology on every issue that we have? Come on. <laughs> like that's silly. And you might ask. Well, Corey, like what are you getting at? Like are you trying to say we need to loosen up theologically? Maybe. If you're trying to endlessly consume theological content and that content is not making you more useful for the kingdom, but rather it's causing your conscience to be bound and causing you to struggle to listen to other brothers and sisters in Christ because they hold to a different eschatological position than you, then yeah, you need to loosen up. But am I saying like theology is bad and we shouldn't hold tightly to it? Of course not. Rather, I'm saying that our theology should drive us into love for people. And this is the important part. Not just people who look, talk, act, and think like us, but different people. Our theology should drive us to unity and not division. So I do want to give an admonition today. Whenever you're listening... To some knowledgeable person on the radio or on your podcast or on a YouTube video. And this person is cutting down brothers and sisters in Christ because they take a different approach or their ministry looks different. Or they don't agree on secondary or even tertiary doctrines. You need to stop listening to that person. Because that person at that moment is not speaking in the spirit of Christ. The spirit of God is a spirit of unity. It's the evil one that divides so that he can conquer. Be careful, church. And I'm saying this like trembling. Be careful that we don't preach a gospel that is more narrow than the one delivered to us in the scriptures. For that would be a different gospel. And Paul says, let whoever does that be condemned. Some of you think, man, you are railing on diversity today. Is that really Luke's main emphasis in this passage? And my answer would be, yeah. I think it's a major implication in this section of Scripture. And the reason is, is because missionaries come from diverse churches who share God's heart for the nations. It's learning to do life with those who are different, that forges missionaries. Like it's a covenanting with one another and saying, when things get tough, 
and you and I disagree, I'm going to move closer to you and not take a step back. It's learning to empathize with one another's histories and experience that have shaped our beliefs. Like it's a willingness to change the words you and I even use. Even the way that we decorate our houses in order that we would be more hospitable to different people. It's an intentionality of us as a church to consistently place ourselves in spaces where we will meet people who are different. You see, Grace Fellowship, if we, uh, we will either be embracing diversity or we will become, uh, we will be growing more and more narrow, possibly ending in a church split over the color of the carpet or our eschatological positions. We don't want that to happen, amen? We know that happens, amen? Okay. So we ask, where do missionaries come from? And we answered that rather extensively, I know, with diverse churches who share God's heart for the nations. Now we turn and ask, what do they do? What do missionaries do? Answer, they faithfully proclaim the gospel in the face of opposition. Look at our text. Saul and Barnabas head off and make their way to Cyprus. They arrive in Salamis and did what we have already seen disciples regularly do. They head into a Jewish synagogue and preach Jesus. We're told that they're making their way through the whole island. That's what the scriptures say. This would be a, a, a roughly a little less than like a 150-mile road that went throughout the island. Uh, but the text says that they come upon a sorcerer who is a Jewish false prophet, and he is basically with what would be like the Roman governor of the island. The governor summons Paul and Barnabas and wants to hear their message, but they are opposed by this Jewish false prophet slash magician. Imagine that. Missionaries face opposition. I wonder, I just wonder if learning to cope with the seemingly opposite mindsets that are present in a diverse church might help with this. <laughs> Maybe. So the text tells us that Saul, I want you to catch this, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, looks at Elimaeus and says this, you are full of all kinds of evil and deceit. He says, your name might mean son of Jesus, but you're actually the son of the devil. And as Bar-Jesus tried to turn away Sergius, Paul says, will you not stop making crooked the paths of the Lord? And then Paul pronounces blindness on him. And so the one, get this, the one who has been busy keeping people spiritually blind is now physically blind. The one who has been turning people from the way now needs someone to lead him by the hand. And we read that when Sergius saw what had happened, he believed and was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So church, missionaries faithfully proclaim the gospel in the face of opposition. That's what they do. 
But do you want to know that the number one reason missionaries come off the field? You want to know? Conflict. That's the number one reason missionaries leave the field is conflict. Webster's Dictionary tells us that conflict is a serious disagreement. When used as a verb, check this out, it means to clash. I like that. Clash. Because that's what we have here in our text, isn't it? Like Paul and Barnabas clashing. Some commentators even call this a power encounter. You got power, you got power coming together, clash. So Saul and Barnabas probably knew a little bit about clashes and serious disagreements, right? Remember, they were pastors. <laughs> Anybody who pastors the church knows a little bit about disagreements and conflicts. But especially pastors of the first multi-ethnic church that's full of new believers. Can you imagine this? I mean, when Aaron and Debbie have a get-together with their children, as long as their children's children are not there, it's probably civil, right? Because their children have matured. When me and my children have a get-together, uh, it's more like a zoo. <laughs> you with me? This was the church in Antioch. Full of new believers. Multi-ethnic believers. Thoughts all over the map. I mean, like... They're probably struggling with everything under the sun. And we've already actually even been told in Acts 6, uh, back in Acts 6, we see in the Jerusalem church certain ethnicities being overlooked and not cared for. Remember that? That's why we had the, the deacons come into play. It's because that was already there. But can you imagine, I just want you to imagine, this is scenario in the church of Antioch. Simeon texts Barnabas and Paul after church. And says, hey guys, um, I'm not sure if Lucius needs to keep teaching Sunday school. Like he told everyone today that they should stop reading the Old Testament. Can you imagine? Paul's eyes go bloodshot as he reads his phone. And after he picks it back up, he texts in all caps, I'll handle him. Right? <laughs> Meanwhile, you know how Barnabas is going to respond. Actually, Paul, let me get dinner with him tonight. See where he's coming from and what would make him say something like that. Right? That day, Lucius would learn that the Old Testament is important. Now, I'm being facetious, but I'm confident that it is through clashes in the body of Christ that develops humility and love for one another in our hearts. And that love and humility for one another will not just be reserved for us. It will flow out, extend beyond these walls into the world, into the people we come into contact with every single day. And we will be able to withstand opposition like Elimaeus Bar-Jesus and faithfully do whatever it is that God would have us do in these moments that we are placed in every single day rather than shrink back. Like whether it's pronouncing blindness, which I do believe was an act of mercy in this scenario, or whether it be going back and forth and back and forth with those who continue to challenge the gospel and reject Jesus. But we can also assume the negative. If we don't grow in diversity and share in God's heart, 
then we will struggle to faithfully proclaim in the face of opposition. And I do believe that's where we find ourselves today, not just as Grace Fellowship, but as the church as a whole, struggling to clash with sinners who are at war with God, struggling to look someone in the eye and tell them the good news of Jesus is Lord, followed by warnings to them of what will happen if they reject this message. Church, please hear me. I don't think our biggest problem in evangelism is knowledge or technique. I think it's guts. I think it's guts to love people enough that you're willing to cry and make a fool of yourself that they might believe. But church, faithful proclamation in the face of opposition begins in here. Now, the answer to our last question today will hopefully make everything that I've said make total sense. Why do missionaries do what they do? The answer is very simple yet incredibly profound. Look at verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What's happening there? The Spirit of God is speaking. So why do missionaries do what they do? Because the Holy Spirit told them to. Why do people sell their homes, give away their belongings, pack their bags, leave their churches get on a plane, travel to a faraway place where they don't know the language or the culture and proclaim the gospel in the face of opposition. Why do they do that? Because God's Holy Spirit told them to. You see, church, this is the spirit of the very God who created all peoples in his image. All of us. I want that to sink in. The very Spirit of God who created all peoples in his image. And he loves them. This is the Spirit of the God who made a promise to Abraham that he is going to bless all the nations of the earth. It's the Spirit of the God who celebrates red, yellow, black, and white because they are precious in his sight. This is the Spirit of the God who gave his only Son, so that, they, so that he could give them, the world, eternal life. This is the spirit of the Son who left his crown of glory to take on a crown of thorns. This is the spirit of the Son who chose, he chose to be born in a manger rather than a palace. It's the spirit of the Son who fiercely opposed the religious elites of his day because they were keeping the rest of the world from worshiping the one true God. It's the spirit of the Son who met a sinful Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of the day, breaking all social norms. This is the spirit of the Son who said, Not my will, Father, but yours be done. 
This is the spirit of the son who gives himself to humanity only to have them hang him on a tree. This is the spirit, church, of the son who would die for the sins of the world, according to the scriptures. But can I tell you something else? This is the same spirit of the son who would rise from the grave, defeat death and hell, and pronounce that he has been given all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth, and in the very same breath say, now you go and make disciples of what? All nations, all ethne, all peoples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all I have commanded. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and church his spirit speaks. Why do missionaries do what they do? Because the Holy Spirit of the living God tells them to. He compels them to. And we love this God because he first loved us. And now he has poured into our hearts his love for all peoples. Church, I I want that to sink in. He has poured his love for this world into your hearts. That's why the mission trip I took in the seventh grade felt so right. (laughs) Because it is right. It's exactly what God has called me to and you to. No matter our station in life, no matter our vocation in life, no matter our location in life, this is what God has called us to. Our God loves the whole world. He loves the people in the jungles of the Amazon who don't wear clothes. And he loves those in Calhoun County who dress like you and I do. He loves the people in the bush of Africa who shout and dance and do choir practice on the fly. And he loves the people on the west coast of the United States who rock out every Sunday morning. And can I tell you, he loves those protesting in the streets in Portland and those countering their protest with supremacy and hate. Church, we worship a missionary God. Listen, you know this? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be treated brutally and cast out that we foreigners might be brought in. Like, let this shock you. Don't become cold to that. Like, if if John 3.16 doesn't send chills down your spine and, and blow your mind that God would love the world that much, then read it more. 
Read it again and read it again and read it again until that love of God sinks into you. That's what God is doing. He's loving the world and he's professed this and put this on display in history through the person and work of his beautiful son. And when this sinks in, maybe, just maybe, our issues with diversity would get a little better. And we might begin to look a little more like the church in Antioch, more like Revelation 7, when this timeless gospel truth begins to shock us again. Maybe we would be emboldened to faithfully proclaim in the face of opposition. And maybe we would tune our ears to the Holy Spirit and obey whatever he tells us to do. So Grace Fellowship, I'm praying that uh, God would raise up hundreds of missionaries from this church. And as you see these two guys go back, uh, they're not about to attack me. Um, <laughs> rather, um, this is the ending of our service. Uh, but this is a great way to end this sermon. Today, we get the awesome privilege of celebrating baptism. Jace, uh, Jaden and Adam, as you just saw go up, uh, Jaden professed faith some time ago. And uh, today we're going to celebrate his baptism. But here's the deal. We're, we're, we're almost done here, not quite. While they get ready, I want us to ponder on the significance of baptism. And I think it's actually a great way to end today's message. So Jesus calls out in Luke 9.23. He says, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. So what Jesus essentially gives us all is an invitation to come and die. Now he says later that anyone who tries to save his life apart from accepting his invitation would lose it. So two things here really quick. Number one, no one signs up to go and die unless you've come to the end of yourself. Unless you've come to the realization that you cannot fix what's broken between you and God, you will not accept his invitation to come and die. You'll continue to live and continue to strive and continue to make things right in your own strength. You won't truly surrender. But number two, when you do surrender, you die. Well, what does that mean? Well, like the sum total of all who you are dies and your life becomes hidden in Christ. That's comprehensive. And that's the picture of baptism. God is so perfectly holy and righteous that one small sin separates you forever. What does that mean? It means the whole world's condemned, has no hope because we've all sinned. But in love, God sends Jesus into the world and Jesus lives a life without sin. And then he does something beyond our comprehension. He goes and takes on the just penalty for sin, death. He's buried, but three days later he rises from the dead and pronounces reconciliation to God for all who would believe in his substitutionary life and death on their behalf. 
So in baptism, we are symbolically being buried with Christ and we are being raised to walk just as he walked in a new life, a life in Christ, a life reconciled to God. Christ's life now becomes our life. We're given his spirit and the Holy Spirit begins to transform us from the inside out. Check this out. That we would love what God loves and hate what God hates. We would seek unity and peace with our neighbor through the gospel. We would lead the way in love. So Grace Fellowship, today's text, today's songs, and today's baptism all call us to look at what God has done for us and then live a life faithful to him. So Grace Fellowship, may we embrace diversity like he embraced us. May we faithfully proclaim the good news of the gospel in the face of opposition, and may we listen to his spirit. Amen? All right, Adam.